A warm greeting to some of you who are visiting with us. We haven't seen you in our burgundy chairs for years, but what a blessing to have you here on this special night where we are recognizing the decade and a half service of Pastor Sitzma in our behalf in this congregation. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and just let me read once again verses 25 through 30, the passage we'll be focusing in on. Philippians 2, verse 25, But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you, And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick, for indeed he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because... He came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus ascended on high and gave gifts to men. And we thank you that you have showered your church with competent gifts and abilities for the sustaining and the ornamenting of the body of Christ. And we thank you for what we have enjoyed in this place, a jewel of your grace, a trophy of Christ's mercy. And not unto us, not unto any man, but unto you we give glory. So please, Lord, help us as we open up your word, and may you fetch honor for yourself. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Reformed Baptist Church of Holland here was constituted back on May 29 of 1994. And within a year, during 1995, the church recognized as its second elder, Pastor Craig Sietzma, who then moved to the Holland area from Grand Rapids in order to take up his shepherding responsibilities. And for the past decade and a half, 15 plus years, Pastor Sietzma has selflessly poured himself out for the flock of Christ in this place. But now, by way of a job promotion and transfer to Los Angeles, of all places, the Lord is removing this beloved pastor from our church And we've set aside this evening to recognize and express our appreciation for his service and to bid him and his wife farewell as they embark on a new adventure in this sixth decade of their still very young lives. When I pondered a suitable passage for meditation on this special occasion, I was brought to the wonderful character of a gentleman in the scriptures named Epaphroditus, who appears there in Philippians 2, 25 through 30. I believe that this special man's life has something to say to us during this special occasion in the life of the Holland Church. So, first come with me to the historical drama. The historical drama, as we read this little passage in 25 through 50, we're given puzzle pieces. It's difficult to put them together unless we really concentrate, but if we do, I think we can get a framework substance of the storyline here. So let me put this together. Look at the historical drama. Paul, seems quite clearly, was under house arrest in Rome at the penning of this letter. Apparently, he was chained to a Roman guard, as we notice in 1.13, Paul says, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian guard and to everyone else. 
So Paul was imprisoned. And the church in Philippi had heard that Paul was in trouble. Conceivably, the ruling would be against Paul and he would be beheaded. That's why he says in 121 of Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And the people in Philippi had heard that Paul was in need of some immediate and practical financial support. And so Paul needed someone to visit him in prison to offer timely aid and encouragement. And so it seems that the Philippi church sent a choice member of their congregation from Philippi in Macedonia off to Paul who was in Rome. It was a long trek. It wasn't on a high-speed luxury bullet train that one might use today in travel, but rather it was through many dangers, toils, and snares in an ancient world. And so we find that Epaphroditus made his way to Paul's prison house. And after a strenuous and draining trip, which may have weakened Epaphroditus, he apparently arriving in Rome, threw himself into the work, and he started to selflessly serve the Apostle Paul, so that he actually receives, notice here in verse 25, certain commending names. Like in 25 it says, my brother Epaphroditus, my fellow worker, and even more so, showing the tight bond, my fellow soldier. Alexander McLaren says this, There'd be many ways of serving the captive Paul, looking after his comfort, doing his errands, procuring daily necessities, managing the affairs, perhaps even writing Paul's letters, easing his chains, chafing his aching wrists, and ministering in a thousand ways which we cannot and need not specify. At all events, Epaphroditus gladly undertook even servile work for the love of Paul. He loved the apostle. So we continue on with the historical drama here. There he was working with the apostle Paul, spending himself for him. But it seems that something went wrong here. Epaphroditus became ill. Ill to the point where he nearly died. You don't know any specifics here. Perhaps it was due to his overexertion and the cross-country travel. Other commentators suggest that it was due to the malaria-like conditions in Rome. Often people from the countryside would come to Rome and they'd get struck with what was called Rome fever, a malaria-like condition that was the result maybe of the foul air and the unsanitariness of urban life. But the bottom line was that Epaphroditus nearly worked himself to death. Look at 30a. It says, he came close to death for the work of Christ. And in 30b, he risked his life to complete what was deficient in the Philippians' service to Paul. So the bottom line is here, Epaphroditus basically burned himself out in serving the apostle. He brought himself dangerously close to death's door, maybe, probably, shortening his own lifespan in kingdom service and also service to a beloved brother. So it seems then that the news of this near-death illness in Epaphroditus found its way back to Philippi, the sending church, And the church back home became very concerned and anxious about their dear and highly esteemed ambassador, Epaphroditus, that they had sent off to Rome. And in kind, Epaphroditus, who was in Rome, became grieved about the uneasiness that he knew would be present in his loved ones back at the home church. And so notice what it says in 2.26, Because he, Epaphroditus, was longing for you and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. And so Paul, seeing this illness, uneasiness, anxiousness stew that was brewing between these churches and these individuals, 
Paul came up with a solution, and that was he was going to cut off his right arm of comfort, that would be Epaphroditus, and was going to send him back, this seemingly freshly recovered man, probably still a bit frail and vulnerable, send him back to the worried church. Let me just read 2.27 and 28. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. And then upon his arriving there, the letter would follow, and Paul says that there should be a hearty commendation given in Philippi to this sacrificial serving ambassador that they had sent. Look at verse 29. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Okay, that's the historical drama, putting together the pieces of the puzzle. Having seen the historical drama, let me come, lastly, to five timeless lessons. Five timeless lessons. The first is, consider the nobility of self-sacrifice. The nobility of self-sacrifice. I believe Epaphroditus here embodied the selfless philosophy that was encouraged by Paul as he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians 2. Look at verse 3 and following. Do nothing from selfishness or empty deceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And have this attitude in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I believe Epaphroditus, in his personal life, embodied what the apostle called the Philippians to do in their corporate life. Because look at Epaphroditus. He didn't seek to please himself, to pamper himself, to promote himself, to gratify himself, but rather Epaphroditus was a fellow who had an eye for other people. He was in Philippi. He heard of the apostle in great need, in trouble. I will go. Dangerous, yes, but I will go. And then once he got to Rome, he also had an ache, sensitive man that he was. Wouldn't you have loved to have known him? He was concerned and had an ache about those back home and their heart sickness about his illness. You see, Epaphroditus, when you think of his love, it wasn't a love of cheap sentimentalism. His was a love of expensive performance. He saw that Paul was in trouble. And he didn't say, I'll pray about it, merely, but rather he laid his life on the line for it, practically speaking. Look, it says there in verse 30, who risked his life for the work of Christ. That's what he did. That's an interesting word there, risked his life. The Greek word is parabaluamai, which means he gambled his life. Makes us uneasy, doesn't it? He rolled the dice with his life for the cause of Christ. Paul is probably, literary author that he was, using a word play. There's a pun here. He gambled his life. In fact, it's interesting how the name Epaphroditus, there's a goddess in the middle of that name, Aphrodite. So Epaphroditus means favored by Aphrodite, who was the goddess of luck. And so when the Greeks would play their gambling games and roll the dice, they'd say, Epaphroditus, which would mean favor me, Aphrodite. 
And so it seems that Paul is making a pun here. He's saying, Epaphroditus gambled away his life for the cause of Christ, for the cause of the kingdom. As we can see, that there was a risk involved here in Epaphroditus going off to Rome and making himself vulnerable to hardship and death. You see, Epaphroditus poured out his life as a cup of cold water to the thirsty apostle Paul. Yeah, he poured it out. Paul who says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 is pouring himself out as a drink offering. All Epaphroditus had he poured out. But really it's not much of a gamble when we give ourselves as a cold cup of water for Christ's little ones. Because it says in Matthew 10.42 whoever gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones surely he will not lose his reward. So you can take that to the bank. You pour out your life for the cause of Christ, for the cause of his little ones. It's really not a gamble. It's a sure thing. I think of even Charles Spurgeon. He was laboring in London, a city which was struck by a cholera epidemic. Lives were wasting away Saints, souls were dying, and Spurgeon felt it was his responsibility to visit those who were sick. But people said, don't you dare go into those disease quarters and apartments and flats. And Spurgeon took a risk as he went to the Lord and said, Lord, you've called me to be a shepherd. I am going to go. Please give me an immunity. And he went into these cesspools of germs, and he was untouched. He risked, and the Lord enabled him to pour out his life. And Spurgeon himself, the rest of his life, he poured out his youth, his life, his strength in his ministry. And as a pastor and as a preacher, Spurgeon's body and neurological system absorbed high-voltage current of a very high-stress lifestyle which basically dug an early grave for himself. He gambled his life. But I assure you, he doesn't regret it now. I assure you, having poured out his life for kingdom and for saints, he blesses God for the gamble. And so I think of our dear brother, Craig Seitzma. I go back about... 16 years, 17 years. Pastor Merrick, you're here. You'll remember how when it was said, okay, the people in Holland are willing to plant if one of the pastors will go. And it was determined that I would be the privileged one to be able to go. And I said, I'll go. And I began to barter. And I said, I'll go if you let me take Seatsman with you, with me. And you said, okay. And at this time, Craig... Seatsma left his low-stress Grand Rapids lifestyle and he moved to Zealand to engage in a daily commute to Caledonia. Mind you, this is a pre-M6 daily commute on 84th Street. Winters produce white knuckles in the driver. High intensity, high stress Craig was a man with a weak physical constitution back then. He also had his life then to be chronically agitated by ministry pressures. Uh, when one might uh, be therapeutically preparing their backyard and mowing and gardening, Craig would be thinking about how he was going to put together a Sunday school class. Wednesday evenings, late night elders meetings, waking up very early in the morning on Thursdays, sometimes late Sunday night meetings, Tuesday night oversight meetings. The man lost countless hours of sleep over the years. Sunday duties, tossing and turning and lying awake at night with the knowledge of some of your personal crises. Things that none of us would want to have rattled around in our heads while we lay on our pillows, gnawing away at our minds. We've said it before at annual business meetings, you can't pay this guy enough to do what he's done in our behalf. Some of you work second jobs. I'm telling you, this is the ultimate 
high-stress, moonlighting position. This man went through for years severe stomach and intestinal ailments. Over the years, again and again and again, he'd dig for himself deep physical depressions. And having gone down, it would then take weeks and months to climb back up out of it. The guy went through countless incidents of classic ministerial burnout, if you read the books on these kinds of things. To the point where his children came to him, various children at various times came and said, Dad, this pastor job is going to kill you. Get out of it. Quit. Move away from it. He refused. He dutifully pressed on year after year. And frankly, beloved, on the basis of some of the things that you've recently heard, you need to understand that for Craig Seatsma, the last 12 months have been a veritable pastoral nightmare, the likes of which have caused many fellow ministers to shudder the way Providence called him into the center of lion's dens with many dangers. This man has gone through 15 years of wear and tear beyond the physical and the emotional and the personal wearing down because on top of that is the whole marital issue. Trudy, Trudy, you sit here. I'm talking about Craig and and Craig's pouring out his life. You, Trudy, were forced to give hundreds of Thousands and thousands of hours of your husband's time. And maybe more painfully, hundreds and thousands and thousands of hours of your children's father's time. And that you watched, I know often time, with pain in your heart, year after year. I still remember, Pastor Merrick, the charge that was given to Craig Seatsma just before he departed to Holland to be ordained. There were a number of men sitting around in the table there at 3181 Bradford, and Craig was there to give parting counsels. And one of the men said this. He said, Craig, many pastors in churches who come and are added to elderships, become a source of grief to the pastor who's already there and to the church that's there because of a sinful and selfish focus upon oneself. But the individual said, I charge you with this. Please labor in such a way that you will never become a grief to your fellow pastor or pastors or a grief to your church because of your selfish focus of attention on your own person. Do you remember that? Well, I do. Because <laughs> it took my breath away what they were asking you to do. And you have embodied, and you have been a monument to that principle all these years. In fact, John MacArthur, speaking about Epaphroditus, says this, Epaphroditus was a humble, behind-the-scenes guy who gambled away his life for the sake of somebody other than himself. And MacArthur nails your character right on the head. And this man, beloved, this man, Craig Seatsma, has arguably gambled away the best years of his life. People might say, like with Mary's box of perfume, what a waste. What a waste. You know what this guy could have done professionally with all the time that he put in? You know what this guy could have done maybe artistically or literarily? What a waste. But he gambled away the best years of his life for the work of Christ and the kingdom and our comfort. And I believe he is a living monument of Philippians 2, beginning at verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each of you regard One another is more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Craig could have had a more enjoyable decade and a half during the strongest years of his life. Remember the book we read, John, uh, John Piper's book, Don't Waste Your Life. And Piper spoke about a couple who were collecting shells on the sand of the beach. And the Lord asking them, what did you do with your time? Well, look at these lovely shells in this collection I have. Don't waste your life. Make sure that your life is a life worth living. This man is given the best years of his life for the cause of the kingdom. And you realize, beloved, you don't have to go to Africa or South America or Indonesia to give yourself and pour yourself out for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the domestic, local mission field, there are all kinds of opportunities. I'm looking at faces out there of workhorses in this church who have poured themselves out for the cause of the kingdom. And so that's the first point, the nobility of self-sacrifice. Second point, the obligation to honor. The obligation to honor. Verse 30 says, hold men like him in high regard. That word high regard is the Greek word entomos. It's used in 1 Peter 2, 4, and 6 where it speaks of a precious gemstone, like a diamond. Hold men like him as precious, precious gemstones and Diamonds. Give them their due recognition. Those who have labored, who have fought in such a way. Remember how the Vietnam War was pretty unpopular? And when our heroes returned, there wasn't the outpouring of public appreciation for them when they came back. There, there were no gauntlets at airports with people clapping when the Vietnam soldiers came home. There were no bands or parades commending their sacrifice. You see, during that time, America had an ungrateful amnesia that didn't clear until years later when a proper monument was put up for the Vietnam veterans. You know what that is? That's the wall in Vietnam where there are the names of all of our fallen heroes and it's one of the most moving experiences to be found in Washington, D.C., to visit that wall for those men who gave the ultimate sacrifice for their homeland. Now, Kent Hughes says this regarding Epaphroditus and the obligation to honor. He says, as a church, like a culture, that doesn't recognize the sacrifice of its own for the sake of the gospel makes a big mistake not only related to the veteran soldier, because this is the emphasis in making. Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier in kingdom work. But also it makes a mistake regarding the next generation of potential recruits. You, you want younger people to have a sense of inspiration to labor in the kingdom? Then we must honor the veterans those who have the scars of the wars. Kent Hughes goes on and says this, the wise apostle simply would not let that happen. So Paul prepares for a proper homecoming upon Epaphroditus' return to Philippi. So we're engaging in here not a proper homecoming, but we're engaging in here a proper farewell, a proper Bon voyage. And I believe our seizing this moment for honorable recognition is a downright prescribed obligation for us. And it's also a delight to us to do so. Imagine with me a a teenage boy visiting the Washington, D.C. wall. And as he approaches that wall, maybe his dad alongside of him, he sees in the distance a 60-ish-year-old man in an expensive business suit pressing his fingers up against the letters of a fallen comrade. And there the man is, is, begins to weep as his shoulders heave unashamedly. And as the young boy sees that, he makes a personal resolution in his heart, I 
will serve my country as a soldier someday. And so I would just say, would to God that some youth here would consider gambling away his life. Gambling away your gifts. Gambling away your strength for kingdom service. Or if, if not a young person, maybe an older person, maybe someone in their 30s, 20s, 40s, 50s would become willing to gamble away their leisure. Gamble away your family time in some kind of behind-the-scenes Epaphroditus-type role in the church to do something for the church that, yeah, it's going to take a toll on your life. Why? Because you're serving the master. You're serving the king who is worthy of pouring it all out in his behalf. You see, this occasion for recognition and encouragement, I think, has, has multifaceted purposes. Jeff Thomas says this. So Paul, Paul gives his glowing testimonial to Epaphroditus. It's full of gracious thanksgiving and appreciation. It, it would have made the man Epaphroditus hang his head and look at the floor when this letter was read one Lord's Day morning in Philippi. Couldn't you hear Jeff Thomas saying that? Oh, there is head hung there so low. As they mentioned his name. Jeff Thomas goes on, but Paul didn't spare his blushes. Let them tell you these great things about the man. I, let me tell you these great things about the man I was privileged to have with me recently. And so we should be doing that. That's why we are doing it. Sinclair Ferguson has pertinent words to say about this as well. He says, it's all too common when a Christian is mentioned by name to find fellow Christians distancing themselves from him with critical words and sadly sometimes with a harsh carping spirit. There is all too little generosity of heart sometimes in our praise of other Christians. We justify this by stressing the importance of not inflating the ego of a fellow believer. But the sad truth often is that we are narrow-minded. We do not count others as more important than ourselves, but are jealous of our own reputation. Consult 2.3 of Philippians. By contrast, Paul's words are a beautiful reminder of the gratitude and admiration we should have for the graces and gifts of the Spirit in the lives of our fellow Christians. As it says in Romans 13, verse 7, Render all to what is due to them, to honor, give them honor. And so that is the obligation to honor. Thirdly, consider the blessing of encouragement. The blessing of encouragement. Look at this fellow Paul. What an encourager he is. I think this is a trait that Paul learned from Barnabas, his early spiritual mentor. Remember how in Acts chapter 9, when Paul, having been freshly let down from the basket in Damascus, appeared over in Jerusalem, and everybody was suspicious of him. But Barnabas took him under the arm, brought him to the apostles, and boasted about Paul's, Saul's heroic feats that had taken place up in Damascus. And he knew the tonic that encouragement had brought to him, as a downcast man. And so Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5.11 to the church in Thessalonica, encourage one another and build one another up as you are doing. Because Paul knew that encouragement one to another is like honey to the spear tip. We're so weary and drained in fighting the Christian life that encouragement brightens the eyes and it inspires greatness in a brother who senses that he is appreciated. It's also a, something else that Paul manifests. Look, even in Philippians chapter 2, he makes a fuss about Timothy. Look at 2.19. I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Verse 22, But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Look what he makes a fuss 
of his fellow laborers. Or even consider Romans chapter 13. He sends this letter to Rome. And look at how he pours on thick the praise. Look at 16.3. In Rome there, greet, and he gives names. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also the churches that are in of the Gentiles. And you imagine how Prisca and Aquila, <laughs> how they were buoyed up by this. And look at verse uh, 6 of Romans 16. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andonicus and Unius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are outstanding among the apostles, who also are in Christ Jesus before me. And verse 13. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Look at this man. He's giving encouragement all over. And I think this is a trait in Paul that's worth imitating in our churchmanship, in our parenting. It's so easy to be critical in our parenting, isn't it? It's so easy to give the, the negative and the critical and the pessimistic word, because we know their imperfections. How about looking for the best in our daily living to be able to exercise this principle? McLaren says this, No wonder that men were eager to risk their lives for a leader like Paul, who lavished such praise with such love upon them. A man who never opens his lips but to censure or criticize who fastens on faults as wasps do upon scarred fruit, will never be surrounded by loyal love. Faithful service is most surely bought by hearty praise. A caressing hand on a horse's neck is better than a whip. What a lesson as we look at the blessing of encouragement. A man named George Adams says this, encouragement is oxygen to the soul. Encouragement is like smelling salt to the boxer who's down for the count. He hears it, his eyes brighten up again. The blessing of encouragement. We're even giving it tonight. But now fourthly, consider with me the camaraderie of warfare. The camaraderie of warfare. Verse 25, Paul identifies... Epaphroditus says, my fellow soldier. I think this is a very pregnant term. There's an intimate bonding experience, I am told, in warfare. Is that true, Russ? When you've been in the trenches with somebody, I've heard that men who fought together in the, in the Civil War or fought in the trenches of World War I or maybe the Normandy beaches of World War II or fought in Korea or the Vietnam War or in Iraq or in Afghanistan. And you've fought against somebody, alongside somebody, against the foe. And you've shared blood and sweat and tears together. There's a friendship that is stained in with the deepest of dye between men. And so... Paul and Epaphroditus had spent significant time in the kingdom foxhole, there together in Rome, both pouring themselves out for the great cause of the fatherland, the heavenly father, the Lord Jesus. So Paul and Epaphroditus shared the wonderful bond of attachment as fellow soldiers. This is something you and I and you and I and not to the same degree, you and I, and I think of other deacons and other warriors here, you, you and you, and, and the battles that, even some who haven't been here for a while, the battles that we fought together. This is an account I read just this week. Listen to this. An American officer had fought in the late wars, was seated in his pleasant parlor, musing on the turbulent scenes through which he had passed in the war, having ceased. Suddenly the doorbell rang. The officer arose to open the door, and a lame and weather-beaten soldier stood before him, who said, Will you buy my book, sir? He said, 
Officer said back, I do not wish them, was a quick reply, and he closed the door. The officer resumed his seat, but strange questioning arose in his mind. What, was that not the face of one that he knew? Had he not heard that voice before? So impressed, as with the fear of some ill act, he quickly advanced to the door, opening it up again, and there stood the brave hero of many battles with big tears coming down from his eyes. And he spoke back to the officer, Do you not know me, Colonel? The voice had a well-remembered sound, and this time it fell not on dead ears nor a stony heart. The maimed soldier was recognized as one who had fought on many a field of daring and carnage by the officer's side, and who was covered all over with glorious scars, the tokens of his patriotism and bravery. Instantly, the door was flung wide open, and the veteran was welcomed into the mansion of the opulent officer, who, with tears in his eyes, fell on the hero's neck and embraced him. The scene that followed the recognition was one never to be forgotten, and the colonel afterwards, relating the incident of the meeting, said he felt at that greeting a veneration for his old comrade almost amounting to the feeling of near worship. Because they had fought together, they had shared blood together. And I would just say to you, dear brother Craig, Many of us have for years fought in the trenches with you. We have called, crawled over Omaha beaches with you. We have buried fellow soldiers with you. We have been targeted by rainstorms of enemy fire with you while seeking to rescue a wounded brother with you. We have sustained mind-bending concussions as a result of the shelling of enemy fire with you. We have smelled the insidious mustard gas of devious foes with you. And because of this, some of us are forever friends, brothers, and fellow soldiers with you. And we have a bond with you that will never, ever be broken. Never to be forgotten. We sung that song about, Oh, church, arise. And it speaks of, of saints along the way. That cloud of witnesses telling tales of, of former battles. You, like Shakespeare, I know you do. And there's even a quotation from Henry V, I've heard you give. And Henry V as he is about to inspire his fellow soldiers to fight a certain battle. And there he stands up, the royal king, in front of these pauper soldiers who are, in many ways, unworthy even to stand on the same ground as him, Henry V, in his royalty. And he begins to talk about how, as we fight this battle on Crispin's Day, as we fight this battle, we're going to win this battle, and the day is going to come when you're going to be able to Show your scars on this day. It'll be the greatest boast of your life to be able to say it. And he says this regarding the man who in the future will be able to show the scars. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I got on Crispin's day. And then he goes on and says, For he today that sheds blood with me shall be my brother. And be near so great a royalty, though he be vile. In other words, you may be just a pauper, but if you shed blood with me, now you're my brother. And you are royalty like I am royalty. The point I would make would be, Craig, we, the saints, the leaders of this church, are bonded with you. And the day will come when we get there on the banks of the river of life, when there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and we will be able to tell how the captain enabled us to fight, though imperfectly, yet sincerely, the cause of the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may God enable us to rejoice in this. So, so we bid you farewell with a venerating and intimate affection that wells up in our hearts, you'll never be forgotten. The best of days 
are behind us in some ways in that there was that fidelity and faithfulness in your fighting. But that leads to me fifthly and finally, fifthly and finally, and that is the propriety of recuperation. The propriety of recuperation. Paul, we see here, sent the vulnerable and frail Epaphroditus back home to his familiar Philippi. Paul says in 28a, I've sent him back to you all the more eagerly. Now, though Epaphroditus probably felt that he was leaving Paul alone at his greatest hour of need, Epaphroditus probably felt like he was leaving his comrade in the lurch on the battlefield at the most inopportune time, letting down the team at a crucial hour. But one commentator says this. He says, it's as if Paul was saying this, Epaphroditus, I'm sending you home for a while to recover your wholeness of life once again. You're burned out, Epaphroditus. You need some R and R. And I think this surely reflects the treatment that the Lord Jesus gives to his own soldiers and his own servants. You know that account in Mark chapter 6 where he looks at the fatigued disciples and what does he say to them? Okay, get in the boat and come, come on away with me to a lonely place and rest a while. Now Craig, I know that you feel uneasy about your departure at this crucial hour in the history of our church. I know that you believe the battle's never been hotter. I know that you want to be able to stay to your fellow soldiers. Hey, don't worry, I'm here. I got your back. I know that you want to finish the mission. But Craig, our king has with his providential hand clearly signed the paperwork for your furlough. He's seen the fatigue on your face, I believe, and he's seen fit to send you away that you might recover your wholeness of life once again. And I say this as your pastor, because you, brother, have inhaled, talked about mustard gas earlier, you, brother, have inhaled some of the most subtle, soul-twisting, heart-warping, disillusionment-birthing, cynicism-producing mustard gas I have ever seen mixed by the gates of hell. Onlookers have watched and marveled at your poised and valiant performance amid such a complex and dangerous assignment. And we know that you feel regret that you can't finish the mission. But listen, look what's happened providentially. The captain of the church and your soul has seen the fatigue on your face and the fissure cracks in your heart and sent you for some R&R time on the coast to breathe some fresh sea air where, God willing, it will clear up your lungs from the spiritual poison and restore unto you the joy of your salvation. And so I say, take the orders and run with joy because it's a sovereign hand that's directing you off to a lonely place to rest a while. Please go with a liberated conscience. Go, rest, bask, be refreshed, fall back in love with your first love. And of course, I mean Trudy in this. But I mean the double entendre of also fall back in love with your first love, not just your wonderful life, but your wonderful Savior. Remember him. And all the cynicism that the enemy may be whispering and the mustard gas he may be spraying, remember him. Remember him whose wounds mark him out as your forever friend. He, he, he has a bond with you that can never be broken. He died on the cross for you. Your intimacy is of the deepest dye between you and your best friend. 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your forever brother. He died for you. And listen to me. He's got your back. And the most glorious thing is, he's got our back too. Back here. And though I wouldn't belittle you in saying this, he doesn't need you. He certainly doesn't need me to take care of his beloved bride here in this place. So I'll just say to you, Craig, in conclusion, thank you. Thank you for your gambling away the best years of your life for us, for our church, for our children, and for our souls. We love you. We're thankful for you. And I'll even say this. You want to come back sometime? We're going to save a burgundy chair. One for you and one for Trudy. May the Lord richly bless you. May he keep you. May he lift up the valleys before you. Level the mountains before you. May the wind of God be at your back. May the smile of Christ be on your face. And may he restore unto you, dear brother, the joy of your salvation. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of this man and the gift of his wife and the gift of his children. We are pained regarding the cost and the price he has had to pay. But we admit there's a sense in which it gives us joy because we see him a reflection of our Savior. And so we ask that you would bless him and prosper him and cause him to go on from strength to strength. May he go away and may he rest for a while as we trust he still has some great things to do in your kingdom. So we praise you and thank you and ask that you would guard and protect your church in his absence. Uh, important warrior leaves our wall. But we trust that King Jesus is able to fill the gap. So bless us, forgive us of our sins, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.